I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome Manil Suri to our broadcast today. He's a distinguished mathematics professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and the author of several acclaimed books, including The Big Bang of Numbers, How to Build the Universe Using Only Math. Um, professor, what did you mean by that when you said using only math? <laughs> Well, uh, I'm really trying to come up with a theory of creation that just uh, evolves just from using mathematics. And the reason for that is that if you look at such, uh, such things, uh, creation, our origins, and so on, they're usually dealt by either religion or physics. And these two, you know, these two uh, disciplines kind of battle it out, get a lot of publicity. And I felt that, hey, mathematicians need a little bit of that PR too. So why not try to do this and see if we can break onto the cultural barrier? I understand what you mean. And and I think I understood what you meant um, in the sense of the origin of humanity, that before there were languages, disparate languages that could be understood, there was a there was a different language, the language of math and numbers. And one thing that is still uniform today is if you visit most any foreign country um, and in indigenous societies, there is the equivalent of this too. The numbers are the numbers, right? We all know numbers. Right, that's true. Uh, but but the question that then arises is that um, have, have human beings created numbers or do they exist in some uh, independent form, much like Plato used to think that there's some realm somewhere out there where all the numbers are already formed, all mathematics is already formed, and we are just discovering these. So that's that's one of the crucial things that uh, I'm, I'm playing with here. And actually the start of my book shows how you can build up numbers starting with nothing. So perhaps there's some weird way that they actually built themselves up for all I know. And for our viewers and readers that you want to entice to access the full body of your book. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that opening that you referred to. So it happened when I was a, a undergraduate student way back uh, in the 1970s, and this was in Mumbai. And uh, my professor, algebra professor, he gave us this very famous line by Kronecker that said, God created the integers and the rest all is the work of human beings. And uh, then he said that, and, and what that means is that, you know, these one, two, three, four, five, they're God-given, they're coming from heaven, and then you can create all of mathematics from it. And then what he said is, hey, I can do a little better than that. I don't need God. I'm going to show you how to actually create all the numbers from something that's pretty much nothing. It's called the empty set. And he showed us this, he showed us this construction. And I guess it was the closest I've come to a religious experience uh, because suddenly the whole room was filled with numbers and the walls were disappearing and you know there were all these numbers flying out and that was a little like creation. So years later, when I came to this idea of writing a book, uh, I thought, hey, I need to start with that scene. And I think the thrust of my book is to show that math is not about 
calculation. It's not primarily about calculation. It's really about ideas. And that's, that's a very uh, tough barrier for most people to cross because they might not be good at calculation and then they figure, hey, math is close to me. So I'm trying to open it by showing how you can do math without calculations. What do you say to a person, and I'm not admitting this to be me, but those who okay. know me would associate me with this person potentially, who did not make it past trigonometry um, to understand the ideas when there literally a math teacher once said to me your brain is just not equipped <laughs> to to fire on these circuits um it just works in a different way that being said i got a's in most of the humanities that i ever took but it was a struggle for math and um i want to access the ideas but for some reason i had um insufficient brain power to do so well, that's, you know, I have to disagree with your teacher and perhaps with you as well, uh, that last statement that you made, uh, just in the sense that um, there's, there's, this, there's this mentality that comes with, you know, you do math, it's very difficult, you fail at it, and then you take one of two paths. Either you say, hey, I'm going to try again and keep doing it until I get it right. Or you say, hey, my brain isn't equipped for this. And so that's why I'm going to you know, phase this out. And um, there's books written about this, but it really comes down to, I, over many decades of teaching, I have seen people who uh, would have exactly the same reaction as you did. But I would say that if you give it enough time, and here's the key thing, if you have enough interest, uh, you can do it. And the main thing is the interest part. Like, okay, people are happy to maybe see a 10 minute uh, video on math perhaps, uh, but if you're really interested enough, uh, then that's when you, know, you start doing other things like reading books, reading articles. And if you take it at your own pace, I would think that you would be able to do them. And by the way, uh, I can certify there is no trigonometry in my book. So you can you, you <laughs> be afraid of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was uh, slow to the gun. I, I made it through the requirements uh, and, and I did uh, take some statistical concepts in political science, which satisfied a requirement in college. So I, I did the, the bare necessities, uh, which gave me a bit of a foundation. Um, but I think that to your point about math representing ideas, uh, that is a brilliant and important notion. And I think that if you were to tell the story of the humanity of math um, and how these ideas track with human development and our well-being in a practical application, um, what would be the most compelling instances from your book or not from your book that you would share with our audience? So uh, I actually teach a class that is uh, for uh, students in my college who have to take a math course and are not STEM majors. So uh, some of the things that we look at that are again through ideas, uh, looking at things like uh, uh, you know what's what's been really in the news recently. Uh, our voting patterns where uh, gerrymandering is a very mathematical kind of thing where you can really get into that and see how that works. So that's one of the topics I always uh, talk about. 
another another topic that I think is very essential is just with artificial intelligence. What is what is going on? How is uh, you know how does that work? And um, I can actually explain using very simple principles. Uh, I'm not going to do that here. You need to take my class, uh, but you can really explain uh, what it is that these algorithms do and how they can go completely out of whack. So there's a whole bunch of things like that. And uh, when I teach this class, I really have a reading and we kind of take something from the headlines and then you know make a mathematical background or assessment of that. So I think there are ways to bring this about for people in the humanities and uh, I actually even taught a class with a uh, English professor once, two humanities majors, and uh, it was called uh, math and what it means to be human. So, so you know, there's, there's again, a lot of material there that you can interest people with. You know, we, we often talk on The Open Mind about uh, the aloofness or apathy as it relates to civic education. Uh, math is not the foremost ground that you consider when you talk about civic life, but our lives operate on numbers, uh, literally our pulse, our heart rate, um, whether there is a percent of bacteria in a substance that we're consuming or air that we're breathing. Um, so math is, is the underlying unifying fundamental foundational answer to almost every question. Especially yes. when you are asking something that is that is where, where there is not gray area, where there where there is real understanding, you either have possess um, a certain percentage of of something, um, or can account for a certain number of unknown substances in a, in a tap water. Um, mm -hmm. or pond or lake or ocean. So decisions are made and there's not the gray area. So I wanted to ask you from this perspective, what are you most concerned about in, in the numbers of civil society? That's an avalanche of things that are, <laughs> you, you mentioned quite a few of them. Let me actually just give you one example because there's just so many different things. Uh, but you talked about how mathematics uh, really affects our day-to-day -day life. And one of the things I've been looking at recently and I talk about in my classes is uh, this idea of, uh, of tests that we often do for uh, health reasons. Uh, and, uh, you know, that this can be a screening for breast cancer. It can be a screening for uh, all sorts of other things. And uh, these tests always have a false positive rate in the sense that they might indicate that you have something even though you might not. Uh, now, these tests are often, you often hear something like, hey, uh, this test has a false positive rate of let's say 1%, which is you know, pretty reasonable or 2%. Um, and if you went to a doctor and they've done, uh, they've done studies with this, if you went to a doctor and you asked them, hey, uh, someone tested positive for this test for a heart condition or whatever, and this, this test has a 1% false positive rate. So what do you think the probability is that this person actually has that condition? And a huge number, huge percentage of doctors will say, well, it's 
because you subtract 1% from 100 and you get 99. And that's completely false. Uh, the reason is that if these um, conditions are very rare, as many of them are, then the probability gets affected by that. And so instead of uh, a 99% chance that you have it, probable, uh, depending on the prevalency of the disease, it might only be like 1% or less than 1%. So I'm just giving this as an example of how little things like that can actually create um, you know, huge amounts of distress and effects in people's lives. And of course, you know, there's that litany of uh, other problems, climate change and population increases or decreases that, and you know, you can, you can get lost in numbers. The problem is also that numbers don't always reveal what they're really, what the real situation is. They can be manipulated. They yeah. can appear misleading like this example of the test. So right. you really do need to know some mathematics just to negotiate life. Fair. And I appreciate you mentioning your concern about the manipulation of data uh, and numerical data. Uh, is this something that has particularly concerned you over the course of this pandemic with the either pro or anti-vaccine uh, stance and the way in which some of the, the data have been revealed? Um, one example that you might expound on is the risks associated with vaccination um, and that being manipulated and often exaggerated or exploited um, for political hay. Yeah, and it's not just, I think that's only one of them, the political side of manipulating data, but it's also the way that people interpret it. And uh, what happens is like, I have a, I have a very close uh, relative uh, who's in India and she just keeps accumulating instances where she feels she's a she's a rabid anti-vaxxer. And so anyone who's had the vaccine and then gets COVID, you know, that's that's immediately in her mind uh, an instance of where the vaccine actually caused COVID. Uh, any little bits and scraps of information, they get built into this kind of big engine, they get thrown into it, and out comes all sorts of justifications for why your own beliefs, you know, how these things are just uh, just uh, reinforcing your own beliefs. So it's, it's like a self-reinforcement uh, process. And that's what I think is even more dangerous than people just manipulating things. I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, when it comes to the numbers related to well-being, um, numbers like salary or wage um, or, you know, the extent to which you're covered in by health insurance. So deductible, Th these are all numbers also that in some equate to life and death and are meaningful in projecting the trajectory of human life. Um, what do you think of those numbers, the numbers of a living wage, the numbers of uh, a deductible for an insurance. Um, do, do you often think about numbers like that too? Yes, absolutely. Um, and there are, again, various little things that are mixed in. Um, for example, my husband is, uh, you know, he's retired and he was paying a certain amount of money for his social security and his Medicare and so on. 
for his Medicare, I mean. And uh, we decided to get married and suddenly the amount changed drastically. And it was something that even I hadn't anticipated uh, just because your spouse's income is also calculated into how much you pair, pay for Medicare. So um, there are so many little things like that uh, that, are, that are rather opaque. And um, what you're actually talking about is, I think, more what are the basic numbers that we need to uh, survive, to exist, like minimum wage and so on. Um, and that's actually one of the uh, examples we do in our class because we look at taxation. Taxation, for example, uh, is not a straight line. It has, uh, it has some curvature built in so that if you have a higher income, you're supposed to pay more taxes. And of course, that doesn't happen just because uh, you know, there are several ways of fixing that. But the most important thing I suspect is the inheritance tax, the death taxes, because that's the way a lot of wealth doesn't get into the system. Uh, one of the exercises we do in my class there is to have the students actually come up with a budget and say how much they're gonna tax each person, how much they're gonna tax each income, and see if they can come up with uh, an income that, a, an amount of tax that'll actually run everything. And the very interesting thing is, um, I always ask them, well, what should be the level at which you're not taxed? You know, there should be some slab. Uh, incomes below this, you shouldn't have to pay any tax. And uh, it's always interesting to see what a wide range of uh, answers there are. Some people say, absolutely, there should be one 10% tax on everything. Some people say, hey, uh, you should have a very large amount that you don't tax. So students are also mixed and uh, people's... Uh, you know, views on these topics are, of course, uh, very divergent, even at the student level. And of course, there are those sticky numbers of our national debt and deficit. And sometimes people confuse debt and deficit. And uh, I would mu much rather hear your explanation of debt and deficit than a politician's or any layperson. But uh, those are numbers that I'm interested in your perspective on, too, especially since we haven't been in the green in this country since the 90s or you know very early 2000s and that is if the government were a household it would be non-existent that is a concern that, that is a, a absolute concern um just in terms of the you know the total deficit as uh the the total debt that the government has taken on in terms of borrowing money to be able to um actually complete its task and then paying interest on that that's that's you know mounting up. Uh, the number that really worries me related to that is uh, the fact that our um, what's happening with our demographics, and this has already happened in many countries where um, populations age and they typically have an hourglass kind of shape, where um, you know they have a very young population. These people are actively contributing to the economy. They're getting jobs, paying taxes. And then uh, as the population, as uh, prosperity increases, the birth rate usually declines. And that's happening in the US. It's happened already in, in very severe forms in other countries like Japan, for instance. And with that, you find that there is more money needed for all the older people there who need all this care. And also there isn't that much money coming in in terms of taxes because people aren't really um, 
you know, there aren't young people who are necessarily getting jobs. We are seeing that in the university level because uh, there was a baby boomer surge and then their kids went through. And now uh, the, uh, the, the, the rate of new kids who would be college going age is really gonna decline. So at the educational level, we're gonna see you know, a lot of current change in, in terms of which universities remain open. So there are all these processes that are out there that are working. So fewer enrollees, uh, fewer students in American colleges is already trending. Um, this is more of a philosophical than a mathematical question, but do, do you hear both perspectives that we are a smug and self-satisfied culture and therefore we don't want to have children because we are satisfied with the modern, modern day gadgets and gizmos and chat GPT and, you know, the, the, the former, formerly social conservative guard, or at least as it had been described, would explain the decline in birth rate as the degradation of, of moral values or human values. And I think a lot of the liberal cohort um, or folks who are interested in compassionate outcomes would say the decline in life expectancy in the U.S., uh, our longevity, the decline in um, social mobility, um, the, the fact that in the 50s or the 70s or the 90s or even the early 2000s, you might work one job and be able to put two kids through college. Not today. Uh, so there are these two schools of thinking historically about, and there are many schools of thinking about what explains the declining birth rate. Um, do you come out strongly on one fence versus the other? I, I think I would uh, definitely go for the more economics-related um, reasons, uh, the second one that you said. And um, I've seen that uh, certainly in India, it's very stark, and in China as well, I suspect, where um, originally there were these large families, especially when it was an agrarian uh, economy, you needed a lot of farmhands, you had people, kids who would die off because of disease. Now, as standards of living have increased and things are more uh, in the cities, people who are more prosperous would only have maybe one or two kids, especially since it's so expensive. Having kids is extremely expensive. And I think that's common in this country too, in the US as well, that you would really have to think twice before you have a kid. Think many times over. I just did a double take. I, I thought the, the children were out there uh, oh. Um, no, um, I, I kid, I kid. Um, no, I hear what you're saying. I, I recently interviewed the governor of Massachusetts, uh, Governor Maura Healey, and um, she does not have children. Um, and I likewise do not have children. And uh, I asked her if the declining numbers in our lives, um, the, the um, well-being um uh, you know, you, you can't be insured even the way that you once were in this country, uh, which we recently discussed with uh, M.T. Connolly, um, the author of a book on aging. Um, but everything seems to be um, cutting in that direction of, you know, more efficiency and less humanity. Um, and so is there a way that we can have... A, a kind of a greater sense of the numbers we have to restore. I think that any political convention or any debate 
ought to strive for those numbers. And that's why I think you went from the discussion of uh, a minimum wage to a living wage, because the science of it and what number would guarantee um, that you are not um, in, in, in a condition of hunger or squalor, uh, you know, that that really matters, the difference between uh, qualifying it as a living wage um, versus a minimum wage, which might mean that you're in poverty and you make the minimum wage. So have you seen any movement from your colleagues across disciplines, specifically in thinking about the future of American democracy and government and, and global society too, um, of, of saying basically these numbers have to be the guardrails of what we uh, promote for the well-being of society. I don't see that coming out of the mouths of politicians or um, political scientists or thinkers who say our our foundation has to be shaped by a certain um, you know a certain standard for numbers. And and I, I get that it's hard to do that because what is livable today is not livable tomorrow necessarily. Yeah, I I'm always uh, torn on these questions, just in the sense that you can hope for a lot of things, you can campaign for a lot of things, but eventually there are some, uh, you know, there's some sort of equilibrium that you're gonna come to. Uh, people who, as I said, people in my classes who are more uh, on the right versus those who are on the left. And so um, I, think, I think one thing that we can all agree on perhaps is that having kids, we said is going to be more and more precious. Um, and so what can we do in terms of making their lives more fulfilled? Uh, what can we do in terms of, you know, at least intellectually, that each kid has a good chance in terms of succeeding in what's going to come? And um, just being in, uh, being in the education business, I feel that that's one of the key things. Uh, certainly, there are things that we all want in terms of these numbers of, uh, in terms of wages and, uh, you know, social kind of nets and so on. But I want to go further and say, what are we doing for kids who are in schools, kids who are in, you know, very dire kind of financial uh, areas? How are we making sure that they actually get access to mathematics, for instance. And the, 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 the struggle there is extremely bleak in some ways. It's very difficult. Um, and so that's where I feel that we should also be paying attention. You know, the kids that we, the, the number of kids that we have might be declining, but what are we doing for even the ones that we have? Manil Suri, author of The Big Bang of Numbers, How to Build the Universe Using Only Math. Thank you so much for your insight today, Professor. Thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, 
Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.